Good afternoon, my fellow Sith brothers and sisters, purebloods, cultists, rebel scum on the run, but most importantly, you, my fellow Star Wars fans, coming to you on May, May, shoot, March 17th, aka St. Patrick's Day. So, happy St. Patty's to those of you who celebrate, and welcome to my life on Exegol, my little Bad Batch Mandalorian sideshow that I record every week. Coming to you and talking to you guys about the latest episodes, which release on Wednesdays. Starting off with Bad Batch, Season 2, Episode 13, titled Pabo. I have to say... As we near the end of the season, we're down to, I think we've got three more episodes, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in that ballpark. And I am really loving how season two has paced. Now, even though it mentions that this week the episode is roughly 28 minutes, including the recap, the episode is just shy of 25, so it's got about three, three and a half minutes of credits. And considering, I love this back and forth that the episodes have, and I mentioned this last week when we were talking about the episode with Crosshair. I love the range in which this season has shown. It has shown us a lot of different things and a lot of different points of view. I know at first... It was a little weird having episodes with certain parts of the characters missing at first. But I have full confidence that season two will wrap everybody up in a good place. And I like the contrast between a serious episode like last week and then an episode like this where. It allows us to breathe a little bit and just enjoy the series for what it is. And for me, that is what Bad Batch is. I know at the beginning of the season, I was, uh, you know, I was looking forward to it, but I wouldn't necessarily sit there and say I was marking out over anything. But I have to say that this season in particular has really made a believer out of me in the sense that it has forced me to consider a time 
of transition between clone troopers and stormtroopers and allowing me to look at different points of view on the empire's use of clones and what happens to them when they are no longer needed or rendered obsolete. So before I get started with my discussion, I want to preface this by just giving my listeners a fair warning that I am getting ready to talk about the latest episode of Bad Batch, which just released. So if you have not had a chance to view, please press that pause and rejoin when you viewed, because I definitely do not want to spoil this one for you. So we start off with Fee brokering a deal with a guy named Crowder or somebody named Crowder and she's got Omega with her at the table and as this part of the episode unfolds, we realize it's not just the two of them in there alone, but Hunter, Tech, or excuse me, Hunter and Wrecker are in this cantina with them, and Tech is on standby on the Marauder. So Fee is brokering a deal for an artifact and Crowder makes a comment to her about requiring payment first and puts on the table what kind of looks like this antique porcelain bonsai tree thing and Crowder makes a comment to Fee about you know thinking that she worked alone and Her friendship with Omega has really blossomed. And that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed this season is Fee's character and her relationship, not only with Clone Force 99, but her relationship with Omega in particular. It is... I don't necessarily want to say like best friend, you know, gal pal sort of thing. And it's not even really this not quite like mother and daughter type of role, but for Omega being around a female and Fee's character who is, of course, voiced by the talented Wanda Sykes, is probably by far one of my, if not my favorite new character that has come out of this season. I love how different she is from Sid as 
the team, you know, kind of slowly separates themselves from her. And it's weird because that whole relationship and, and them kind of parting ways with Sid, it's kind of unfolded slowly over the season. Obviously, they were off doing stuff with her at the, you know, towards the beginning. But it's interesting because over the last handful of episodes, the dynamic between them and Sid have drastically changed. And so I love seeing them partner up with Fee. And Fee seems like she has better intentions. With the guys, and especially with Omega, they have a special bond. So, while I would be quick to say I don't trust Sid, and kind of, you know, the little bit of attitude between her and them, you know, like when they've radioed her for help. I don't get that with Fee. So, it's nice to see Fee kind of taking a back seat. Or, excuse me, Sid taking a backseat to Fee. I think Fee's a better character. So, going back to the episode, Fee's offered a drink, which she's very reluctant to drink it. She, she gets a whiff of it and senses something's off. And she makes a comment to Crowder about poison not being her drink. And Crowder's impressed that she apparently detected something was wrong. And kind of down up underneath the table, he pushes a button. Which releases these insects, which they are the same or look like to the same species that episode two, Attack of the Clones, where the bounty hunter went after Padme, released those, um, I guess closest thing we have to them in real life like these centipede type things, but they've got in this particular instance in Bad Batch, these ones aren't as big. And while they're talking above the table, this thing kind of goes crawling up the backside of Fee's chair and is getting ready to stab her in the neck with its tail. It's got this sharp barb on the end. And Hunter throws a knife at it. And of course, Fee calls Crowder out. Asking him if it's a new pet. So the deal starts going south very quickly. Crowder threats to take the artifact back and and cautions Fee that she should have brought more muscle with her. And insert Wrecker. 
Walker stands up. Fight starts to break out between everybody. Omega takes back the chest of money that they offered Crowder. And Fee takes the artifact. Meanwhile, Tech is aboard the Marauder, playing him, playing a game by him, or playing versus himself with Miles watching. And the rest of the crew holler for Tech to come pick them up, and they manage to smoke bomb their way out. Once aboard the Marauder, Fee talks to specifically Hunter and Tech about how impressed she's become with Omega and how clearly the training that Hunter and them have been providing have have really helped her out. And Fee goes into this protective role, this little spiel to Hunter about Omega needing friends and how they're the only people she's ever known and how she needs to get out and be around people her own age. Suddenly, the guys receive a transmission from Sid. In which Sid is lecturing and or threatening them about how it's been 20 rotations. She's heard nothing from them. And she, you know, you better hope that you're dead. And how she's lost quite a few scores because of them being gone. And... Once this transmission cuts off, Fee makes a comment to Hunter about, you didn't mention that you had cut ties. So, naturally, Hunter points out that their arrangement with Sid obviously wasn't mutually beneficial. And... Fee makes an interesting comment back to Hunter about, So you've noticed and how she's known Sid for a long time and considers her a useful ally. However, she would not consider Sid someone to cross. And so she asks them if they have a plan. Clearly, they don't really have a plan. So Fee offers... that they come with her and gives them coordinates to a place called Pabu. And after they land, Fee points out the Archeum that holds a lot of artifacts, including the one they just retrieved, and how this has become her home away from home and a hidden sanctuary. Tech points out that the artifact that they just picked up, this jade bonsai tree or porcelain green tree thing, has no value. And 
kind of pokes back that obviously, you know, treasure means different things to people. And how with her going for this particular item, how they're remnants of the culture here and most of the people are refugees. We meet Shep Hazard, who is the mayor of Pabu. And this little comment that Wrecker makes to Tech about having some competition is fucking hilarious because we know that Fee has a thing for Tech. She's called him Goggles and Brown Eyes. Mostly brown eyes because goggles is what Sid called him. But we know that they've, or she's been a little bit more outward having a sweet spot for tech. But Wrecker's little jab is nevertheless hilarious. And then we meet a little girl who calls out Auntie Fee. Liana is... Shep's daughter. And Wrecker is very enthusiastic in his welcome. Liana makes a comment to Omega about how Fee's never brought any friends here. And how she must really like you. And they are invited to stay for dinner. The upper part of the island is the oldest. And Shep is showing how they've expanded down into the lower part of the island. And we meet a Mr. Inta, which is one of the citizens here. The girls become very entertained by these little monkey things called Munoz, which apparently have been around long before anybody inhabited the island. And as the girls are playing around with the Munoz, Tech makes a comment to the group, uh, I should say the adults, about how he hasn't heard Omega laugh like that in a while. Shep informs them that Pabu has has been a safe haven for refugees for a long time and how he is not really concerned about the Empire invading because they're a remote island with limited resources. He does make a comment to Hunter about how this is the perfect place for a clean slate. And it's also a great place to raise a child. And so this gives Hunter something to think about for the rest of the episode. Just seeing Omega completely carefree and just, this is the first time in the season that we've really seen them be able to relax, breathe, and be free 
just completely unbothered by things. After they enjoy a big feast, Liana points out to Omega how she owns her own boat. And they ask to take it out before sunset, so Hunter wishes them off. And then Wrecker, of course. (laughs) This is another funny part. Wrecker becomes full or as desserts being brought out he makes a comment about being full and tech makes this comment about documenting such a momentous occasion <laughs> uh, i love these guys i love the little banter back and forth between them even with echo gone it's really nice to see because a lot of these guys Hunter more so because he's the leader of the group and he definitely is feels more responsible for Omega. But to even see Tech and Wrecker just completely carefree like this, it's just it, it's it's phenomenal to see them breathe like this. And so dessert winds up being this huge platter of fruits, which, of course, Wrecker is completely enjoying himself. Out on the water, Liana and Omega talk. And Liana asks Omega where she's from. And, of course... Even though Omega grew up on a place surrounded by water, it was nothing compared to what she's seeing and feeling being here on Pabu. And so she tells Liana, too, that she left because of the Empire. And Liana apologizes And mentions how unhappy they must be because Omega's talking about how they never stay any, excuse me, they never stay in one place for long. And so Liana even offering Omega, you know, hey, you guys are welcome to stay as long as you want. To see even Omega bonding with someone her age. I'm now, I'm not a parent, but I know what that feeling in a way feels like because I've been in a situation before similar to sort of a step parent ish type of role. And so that feeling, seeing children be children and allow them to just enjoy themselves this even this little scene between liano and omega it just this entire episode was full of nothing but feel good fee and tech share a moment watching the lights on the island come on at dusk 
and even Tech points out how spectacular it is. Hunter looks around and notices that a few of the Munoz nearby get spooked. And Fee picks up that something's wrong. As Hunter says something's coming, the island gets shook up by tremors. And, of course, the girls are on the water, and Omega asks Liana what happened. Liana points out that this has happened all the time, but we'll head back to land just to be safe. Hunter radios in to check on them. And back on the island, Hunter makes a comment about he doesn't believe that this is not over. We get more tremors. The water starts to become rough. And Tech points out that he believes that this island is at risk for a sea surge, which apparently has not happened in Pabu for three decades. And as he makes a comment about how, you know, the early warning system would have warned us, the warning system starts to go off. The entire time the island is shaking and the water starts to recede and they go into action and decide to evacuate lower Pabu. Hunter offers to go get the girls for the Marauder. Unfortunately, the girls on the water moving anywhere near close to land and they're actually getting pulled back out and into a group of rocks which they managed to jump off the ship or boat just in time. At first Liana's not really moving but Omega manages to wake her and they make a comment about needing to move. Liana both the girls actually spot the big wave approaching and she immediately radios Hunter that they're too far out. What are we going to do? Hunter warns that, you know, he says, don't worry, I'm coming to get you. Keep your locator on. Girls start running towards land. As Pabu is evacuating to the upper part of the island. Tech and Fee notice that they're not going to be able to evacuate the lower part of the island in time. So Fee makes a comment about deploying rescue ladders to help people get up in time. When they get to the top of the wall, the mechanisms are apparently rusted, so they have to manually unfurl them. Meanwhile, back down on lower, the Inta is apparently the last one that they needed to rescue. 
he has no idea what's going on. So when Wrecker kind of throws him over his shoulder, he's like, what's happening? (laughs) Excuse me. Hunter gets to the ship and spots the girls and manages to pull them up just in time. Shep, Wrecker, and Mr. Inta are the last ones to go up the ladder. And Shep being the last one to go up and over almost slips and falls. Wrecker pulls him up the ladder just in time. And thankfully, as the marauders flying back over the island, the girls wave from the ship. Meanwhile, the next day, we see the entire town hanging out in the upper part of the island in this huge courtyard. And this cute little moment where the girls are sleeping under a tree next to Wrecker is adorable. Fee shushes and stops Tech from going over to wake them. Shep, being the mayor of Pabu, is relieved that they managed to get everybody out in time. And ultimately, that is what's important. Even though it'll take several rotations to rebuild Pabu, Shep tells the gang that his people are resilient. And finally, taking Fee up on her advice, Hunter speaks up and mentions that they were thinking of staying and helping out, to which Tech agrees. And that, my friends, is the end of episode 13. Again, as I reiterated earlier, if I had to compare, I did the same viewing order that I did last week, watching Bad Batch and then Mando this week. By far, this week, Bad Batch was the clear winner for me. Now, when I move into Mando here, I'm going to go ahead and put a break in between here and Mando discussion. So that way everybody has time to listen and view on their own time. I'm curious as to how many of you would concur that Bad Batch is better than Mando. So, I'm going to go ahead and get us set up 
for some Mandalorian episode three review. Sit tight. Okay, so jumping right back in to our new episode review, I did want to preface this portion by mentioning that I am about to discuss the latest episode of The Mandalorian. If you have not had a chance to view, please, by all means, you can pause and rejoin after you viewed I definitely don't want to be the person that spoils it for you. So, with that being said, jumping into episode three, titled The Convert, which runs about 58 minutes. As I said before with Bad Batch, I wanted to preface this portion by saying this week's Mandalorian episode disappointed me because I thought, you know, the premiere was okay. Last week's episode with the Minds of Mandalore, that episode was fantastic. And then we broach an hour and they completely went a different direction with this episode. And I will also mention that even having rewatched and looked at a couple of the episode commentaries on why they did what they did. I understand a little bit, but I don't I don't think we needed a whole episode on Dr. Pershing because he was a support character in the last season. Ilya Kane was as well. And I definitely don't want to see them make the same mistake that they did with Book of Boba Fett, meaning that Mando and Grogu came in and kind of hijacked the series and it became Mando 2.5. That's all that I'm saying. I don't mind them telling the story about the Empire and the fallout of the Imperial officers and the amnesty program. That part I don't mind. It just, it didn't feel like it fit or it felt like it was an entirely different series altogether, if that makes sense. So... I did want to at least say that before I jumped right into my commentary. And now, getting around to my notes. So, by far the best part of the episode was the beginning with 
Bo-Katan and Din Djarin there on the top of the steps there in the mines. Din wakes up, says that he's redeemed. Bo-Katan agrees that she witnessed it and asks, can we leave? And Din takes a sample of the water. And while he's doing this, Bo's asking him a couple questions. Asking if he saw anything down there or did he see anything alive down there. And this is not the first time in this episode that Bo will neglect to mention what she saw down there. And so Din obviously was not dragged to the bottom by anything. Apparently he fell on his own accord based off what he was saying to Bo-Katan. He didn't realize that that the uh, he saw the chasm as he was falling down. He didn't realize it was so deep. And I don't know. I was a little... I was a little surprised because maybe I missed this, but I don't, I remember him taking off his pistols and his cloth part when he went down into the water, but I don't remember, or I didn't pay attention I don't recall if he took off his jetpack also because I'm a little surprised that he's not a good swimmer. I don't know. I just, uh, I, I just, it's surprising because when he, the way he fell down last week, you, you're thinking that he's being dragged to the bottom by something and Bo jumps right in there. And jetpacks them both back to the surface. I just, I don't know. I was a little surprised by that. And then seeing the beginning and how she's asking him questions. And he's like, oh, I didn't see anything. You know, what, you know, why do you, you know. He's a little caught off guard, I think, by her last question. If he saw anything alive. But whatever. They... off her ship and they end up encountering a squadron of ties or I should say tie interceptors that immediately start zeroing in on Bo's ship her shields won't hold up and she needs Din to help her back them off and he manages to shoot down a few Jetpacks down to the N1 just in time. <laughs> R5 in her ship kind of... <laughs> this whole time in this dogfight sequence, like I said, this, this, this dogfighting sequence was by far one of the highlights of the episode. And... It makes you wonder because 
obviously Bo-Katan's been here on Kalevala for God knows how long with no problems. Din shows up with Grogu and they go to and then all of a sudden the Empire shows up and takes out her house or her palace. That part it, it it makes me wonder who the Empire was really after because Bo Katan mentioned to Din about how, you know, she's upset quite a few people, especially when she took the uh that huge Imperial ship last season. So she also kind of contradicts herself by saying, you know, that this is too many for a disgruntled warlord. So it really makes you wonder who they were after. I just, I don't know. Looking back on it, it's like, okay, were they after her? Because if they were after her, why didn't they go after her sooner? They waited to attack Kalevala after her and Din came back from the mines. But then again, I don't think whoever's behind the attack was aware of that. I don't think, or at least not initially, I don't think anybody was potentially aware that they visited the mines. I don't know. What do you think? So, the dogfight sequence here, again, like I said, was really cool. Uh, R5 kind of beeping, being a nervous Nelly, and then Grogu kind of closing himself off in his little pod. Uh, she... Her home get destroyed displays a lot of emotion and she starts to go after them. Din manages to call her off saying that there are too many we need to leave because after they shoot down the first group the bombers show up, blow up her palace and then as she's going after them more just start appearing on the scope. So he sends her jump coordinates to somewhere where they can't be found. And we move into what a bulk of the episode was about. And that is the Dr. Pershing part in Coruscant. I have to say it was really majestic the way that Coruscant was displayed at night and then we also see the um I don't remember the name of the building but the the same venue that Palpatine met Anakin and Anakin tells him that you know they sent you to spy on me and ask him, of course, the infamous, you know, have you heard the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? It was lovely to see that building again. But interestingly enough, in this particular instance, it was repurposed for 
a TED talk by Dr. Pershing in which he's talking about his participation in the amnesty program and how his research was twisted into something cruel and inhumane. And a few times he actually does something with left ear it's all i don't know if it's like a ringing sound or if it's some form of ptsd because it, it if you don't know if it's like he's got something in his ear but he messes with his left ear a couple times and this is just one of the first times that i noticed he did that and it was specifically the left ear um he talks about how the pursuit of knowledge is the noblest thing somebody can do. And then we see another familiar face watching him from the crowd. And we will eventually learn that it is Elia Kane, who was a communications officer aboard Moff Gideon's cruiser. After his little TED talk, quite a few of the citizens talk about, you know, how his speech was such an inspiration, how, you know, he can be, he can serve the new republic and, you know, how he's, you know, it must be, feel good to be on the right side, on the right team. and. As he's taken back to amnesty housing, we come across a droid, which I'd seen this mentioned quite a few times, but I definitely screamed Ralph McQuarrie uh, inspired to me. But the droid that's driving the taxi turns his head around and is talking to him, asking him if he's seen and visited certain places on Coruscant. And... Pershing's kind of caught off guard, you know, by this. And he's it's like, shouldn't you be paying attention to the, to, to, to your driving? But anyways, it's Pershing's naturally a little um, skittish. I guess you could say. He arrives back at Amnesty Housing and he meets a couple of officers who invite him to join him for a drink. And we meet Amnesty Officer M34, G27, M40, and G68, which is Ilya. Dr. Pershing talks about how he just transferred from the Reintegration Institute, and he's really surprised to see somebody else or I didn't expect to see anybody else from Moff Gideon's ship here. And so naturally the couple of the officers kind of turn and look at her was like, oh, hey, I didn't know you did that. So I don't know if she's like, damn it, you know, this, I didn't want them to know that or what, but you know, she didn't, she didn't necessarily seem all too thrilled when Pershing said that. 
that being said, it opens a discussion as to rumors as to what happened to Moff Gideon. One of them being that he escaped en route to the war tribunal. However, other officer mentions that that was actually just the cover story that he was really hooked up to a mind flare, which automatically I think Stranger Things and the huge creature, but you know, alas, that's just when I hear mind flare, that's just naturally what I hear. But, anyways, they have a drink, they toast to the long live the new republic, and him and Elia kind of talking a little bit more and then he's kind of put on the spot asking if there was anything that he misses and I think he misinterprets the way the question was asked at first but then he mentions something about the yellow travel biscuits and Ilya mentions that she liked the red ones and later on when Dr. Pershing's relaxing in his quarters his doorbell rings. There's nobody there, but somebody has left a case of travel biscuits on his front doorstep. At work the next day, co-worker wishes him a happy Bendu day. And of course, when I hear Bendu, I immediately rebels and the creature near their base it it just i it it automatically made me think rebels don't even really know the significance of bendu day but apparently it's a thing anyways he's been tasked with archiving these discs and this coworker did not realize just exactly how talented and experienced he was. And when he asks him why he's actually down here, he's like, you know, Dr. Pershing's like, it, it's okay. You know, I'll do whatever's asked of me. You know, he's kind of going through the motions. But I think the other part of this amnesty program is interesting, and that we'll get to in just a second. Later that evening, he ends up going out with Ilya Kane to this kind of open park carnival type area in Coruscant, and he remarks about how the overall sight of everything and how there's a trillion permanent residents here. And he mentions to her, or he asks her if she's been here before, and she does admit that she trained here at the academy. And how obviously back then it was a lot different. And how she thought they were doing something good to which Pershing echoes this sentiment and admits that he's also thought about that too. 
and how he thinks about his research and how they were so close to incredible breakthroughs in this conversation with Ilya, her pressing, you know, why don't you continue? And admits that the ethics of cloning are complicated and Ilya reminds him that there are actually a lot of capable people who are still willing to help. So even though research have crossed his mind he definitely to me anyway he has this tone of defeat and is coming to accept this amnesty program in his situation that obviously things won't go back to the way that they are but Ilya on the other hand knowing him from his empire days is you're not quite sure if She's really on his team, if that makes sense. So they, uh, the peak of Umate, and she dares him to touch it. Police droid stops him. And the following day, Dr. Pershing is visiting a therapist or a shrink droid, whatever you want to call it, also giving me Macquarie vibes, asking him questions, you know, how, if, if he's, if, if he's had any undue stress or feelings of anger towards his coworkers or the new Republic government. And he just keeps his head down, says, no, no, no. Thank you for being a part of the amnesty program. And at the end of his session, he asked the droid about pursuing his research. And the droid mentions, you know, hey, I see in your record that you were a scientist or whatever. However, cloning is expressly prohibited and is against the Coruscant Accords. So here... He he's trying to open a dialogue and gets shut down immediately. He goes back home again and sees Ilya kind of hanging around outside. And he talks to her again about how he's been thinking about his research and what she said and how he knows it's important. He just needs to prove it. And Ilya asks him what he needs. So Ilya is now, well, trying to get him to go back to the way things were and offers to help him acquire the supplies in the mobile lab station. However, it's going to require them to go outside their designated perimeter. And immediately, Dr. Pershing is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you know, I can't afford to be sent back to the Reintegration Institute. However, Elia tries to assure him that she's on his side and says that she has a lot to make up for. And she, for him, she's willing to take the risk. 
So she tells him, you know, hey, we'll sleep on it and kind of reconvene in the morning. Next day at work, Dr. Pershing's again down coding discs to be destroyed. And one of them happens to be Imperial Technology. And Dr. Pershing again makes a plea on how this information can be put to good use. And he is again shot down and his mentioned just how backed up they are and how they have to decommission all these fleets, even the the rebellion fleet. And, you know, that's that's not what you're here for. You're here to archive. I just need you to do what what you're supposed to do. So. Again, he shot down. He has another therapy session with the droid asking him the same questions. And when the droid asks him the last question about uh, anger or animosity towards the New Republic government, he definitely pauses before giving his response and he plays with his left ear again. And... He asked the droid about, you know, helping the Republic supersedes everything else. So he's basically rephrasing the question he asked her the last time about his research. But in a way, him asking the droid essentially the same question, just in a different way. You already know that, you know, you know what his intentions are and you know ultimately on which which side of his decision he's leaning on. So he goes to see Ilya after the session and agrees to go after the mobile lab station tomorrow night. And before he leaves, he says stuff to himself in the mirror about you're helping the new republic it's the right thing to do and this whole time when him and Ilya are walking through towards the train station or whatever there he he's just he's all over the place he's complete completely a nervous wreck they sneak their way onto a train and make their way to the disposal yards and Dr. Pershing at first is surprised to hear this and says something about, you know, this this is Imperial and how they'll get in trouble. However, it's not Imperial anymore. It's junk. It doesn't belong to anybody. And she she says to him, where do you think I got the travel biscuits? So... As they're coming through to the shipyard station, a couple droids come through asking for tickets. Clearly, they don't have tickets, so they start moving towards the rear of the train. And at least one of the droids pursues them to the back. And they manage to, when they get to the end of the train, jump off just in time. And the view of the Star Destroyer is just, it's, it's impressive. And even Dr. Pershing is just, he's, 
he's impressed by what he sees. They have this, again, this little school conversation about how Ilya passed him hundreds of times and never introduced herself. So they, they have a quote unquote formal introduction and they find the lab. He mentions how his mother was a doctor in the town that he grew up in and how she was always in, always in her work and in her office and how seeing a place like this, he knew it's what he wanted to do. So he's been wanting to do this his whole life. And then when he asks Ilya about her, she makes a comment how she didn't have a chance to think about it. And they hear something and they start hurrying up. We got to go. They almost make their way completely. They make it completely off the ship. But in terms of getting back to the train platform, unfortunately, here is where they get caught. Got a bunch of spotlights on them and New Republic police. And the interesting thing, and I want to know if you all caught this. They don't say anything to Ilya. D-68. They specifically mention, and I think he was L-27, I think is what his designation was. They don't call them by their name. They immediately focus in on him. They don't say anything to her whatsoever. They say, L-27, you're under arrest. along front him to face him picks up the mobile lab station and just rides off into the sunset so dr pershing is just completely beside himself you don't really know what the hell is going on and you don't really know just exactly what Ilya's angle is He is now laying on an exam table. And he says something along the lines of, you know, I think there's been a misunderstanding and He is told there's no need to explain. Amnesty Officer G-68 has already submitted her report. And he sees Ilya watching from the other side of the window and is completely concerned. (coughs) And he's like, well, what has she told you? Again, he's told... That we understand that adjusting, that that your adjustment has been a difficult one and how being indoctrinated by the Empire is challenging to overcome. 
And Dr. Pershing immediately recognizes this equipment as a mind flare and is corrected by saying that it's in fact a 602 mitigator. It's similar to a mind flare, but it's recently been approved for non-invasive low voltages and how they can soothe traumatic memories. Again, Dr. Pershing is like, this is going to wipe my mind. This isn't the empire. Or, excuse me, the doctor mentions that, you know, this isn't the empire. We're just trying to help you. And ironically, I don't know if you all also caught this little ha-ha moment. But Dr. Pershing then says to the doctor, she brought me here. It was a trap. Set me up to the guy. Not the exact same guy. But to the guy that is notorious for it's a trap. It's a trap to the it's a trap guy. I don't know if you got that. Forgive me. I forget the name of the species. I'm completely having... A brain fart moment here. I haven't had my coffee yet this morning. But anyways. The commissioner is standing next to Ilya on the other side of the window. Tells her how she's done the right thing. I know this will help him. You're a real credit to this program. For every failure, it's nice to see someone like her, you know, doing the right thing. And he says to her, you know, you ready to go? And she says something about how she wants to stay and how he relapsed, but he's my friend. So the commissioner is okay with her staying. The commissioner walks off. And she turns that dial all the fucking way up. So initially, when Dr. Pershing was on the table and the commissioner turned the dial, it was on low. When the commissioner walks away, you've now left Ilya unsupervised, and Ilya cranks the dial all the way up. And it's interesting here because I got to thinking about this particular part. And this is where. I was reading articles, you know, pe- you know, people talking about why Ilya did that. Because honestly, even watching it at first, it didn't even necessarily dawn on me why the hell would she do that. But then again, you have to think of the time that we're in here with the New Republic. And what's going on with Bad Batch and cloning. And how the clone troopers are being phased out. And how nobody or the emperor wants you to believe that things are changing for the better. Who else could be a threat than somebody in Dr. Pershing's position who knows the technology that Palpatine used. And so to me, 
I believe pretty much what everyone else has concurred that Ilya did this so that he wouldn't remember his work. And therefore, he is no longer a threat to what the Empire was doing and is doing or may still be doing. That makes sense to me. And of course, after she turns the dial up, she pulls out a travel, a yellow travel biscuit and is just completely proud of herself. Din and Bo end up landing at a secret location that is a Mandalorian covert. And Din says to her that you are my guest. However, things will go a lot smoother if you keep your helmet on. And so Bo kind of realizes, okay, you know, we're, you know, we're going to the children of the watch. Paz Vizla is one of the first outside of the cave with quite a few others and speaks to Din telling him to come no further that you are an apostate. Din corrects him, says no longer I've been to the mines and he says that he's brought proof. And how, interestingly enough, Paz Vizla, before he takes them inside to the armorer, mentions to her that's impossible. How the the planet's destroyed and just how poisoned their world has become. So even Paz Vizla believes the stories that Din once did. So now this again, you start thinking back to Bo-Katan and Din at the beginning of the episode and where she's asking him these questions about, you know, did you see any, you know, what did you see? Did you see anything alive? And she doesn't admit what she saw. Paz Visla obviously believes the same thing that Din once did. And in a way, without knowing that the mythosaur is down there, believes, or technically Din still, well, Din does and doesn't believe the stories. But he does not know about the mythosaur. So again, it makes me question why, if the armor has discouraged him from going to the mines, saying that the planet's been poisoned and how you won't find them, and Din finds them, 
and brings proof. They go to the armor. She tests the water and confirms that these are, in fact, the living waters and that he is now redeemed. This is the way. And then she addresses Bo-Katan. Bo-Katan confirms that, you know, I was a witness. I pulled him out. And so the armor then confirms that she too, in fact, is redeemed by Creed. And Bo-Katan's like, uh, hold on a second. I don't walk in the way. But because she bathed in the living waters and she has not taken her helmet off since rescuing Din, she is welcome to stay and join them, and she is welcome to leave whenever she pleases. So, that begs the question. And another aspect of this that really makes, this was another theory that I saw last week after the Mines episode. And just exactly what does and doesn't the armor know? And the theories about whether or not she knows about the mythosaur and how she is one of the last of the of the protectors or whatever was one of the prevailing theories that I had seen. It it makes you wonder. Now, she didn't completely 100% tell Din, don't go there, and tried to prevent him from going. She didn't do that. She just tried to discourage him, saying, there's nothing there, you won't find anything, the planet's poison, whatever, blah, blah. And then when Din says, you know what, okay, fine, I'm going to at least go there and, and look for myself, okay. She doesn't, she, she doesn't prevent him from going. So she doesn't push back hard enough, but at the same time, when Bo and Din arrive at the little covert, Paz Vizla, when he greets them, believes what Din once believed. So why this makes me, if if the armor is in charge of this of the children of the watch and this little covert of Mandalorians, why is why aren't they back at their home? Why didn't they go back to their home? Why are they in this little, you know, I know that the Empire was at, you know, kind of chased them into hiding, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know your home very well. And I guess. That's the only kind of, how do I say it, uh, kink in the armor for me in terms of just exactly what the armor is and, and her role in whether or not she knew about the mythosaur and whether or not she was tasked with protecting it. And because she's so deeply entrenched in the ways of their ancestors and everything, it I... I don't see how she couldn't know about it, but that's just me. What do you think? So 
They're both welcome back to join in the covert. Of course, Paz Vizsla doesn't look very happy about it. But I just... This episode, I felt like I had more questions than answers. I loved the Din and Bo parts of the episode. I love the beginning dogfight. I love the end where they're redeemed. Of course, Grogu's there with them. But this episode and the Dr. Pershing portion taking up a majority of the time, like three-fourths of the episode, in a series that's supposed to be about the Mandalorian, it just, it really caught me off guard. And I just, I found myself wondering what the hell did I watch? You know, I felt like, it's like, am I watching the Mandalorian? Did I accidentally click on something else? And I just, to make the episode so focused on him and what he's doing, yes, I understand that it's also trying to expose and give some context and color to what the Empire was up to and what they are still up to. I understand that to an extent, but then you have other people out there that are trying to sit there and say that this is opening the door, trying to bridge the gap between where they're at in the sequels and how Snoke was able to come in and how Palpatine was able to be recloned in the sequels. That seems a little bit of a stretch to me, but the fact that they took this much of the episode talking about Dr. Pershing and Ilya trying to trick him to go for, you know, to to get back involved with his work, it just... We have yet to see Moff Gideon, and of course they've mentioned him quite a few times. And considering Ilya used to work for him, it begs the question, Moff Gideon was in charge of the cloning program when he was in charge. And so now that Moff Gideon may or may not be whether he escaped or he was mind flayed. Now we have Dr. Pershing. So that begs the question, who does Ilya really work for? Is she, I don't feel like she would be still working for, I don't feel like her loyalties to Moff Gideon because one, the reaction that the other officers had when Pershing mentioned to her, I didn't expect to see anybody else from Moff Gideon's ship here. One, and two, I don't know if she would have turned that dial up all the way if she felt Dr. Pershing was still on Moff Gideon's side and if she was working for Moff, which means she has to be a double agent for somebody higher up. And when you look at the lay of the land and you look at where we're at with Bad Batch and what the events that happened on Camino being covered up 
and what really happened and why they did it. And you look at now where we're looking at with Mando and this pull part with Dr. Pershing. I just, I I don't understand why we had this particular episode now and why we needed three quarters of the episode dedicated to it. That part, I don't, like I said, it felt like an entirely different show because for me, it hijacked the series or this week's episode. And that was one of the gripes that I had when Mando hijacked Book of Boba Fett. Alas, I've spoken my piece. I look forward to hearing from you guys again next week as we review more Bad Batch and Mandalorian. Thank you so much again for listening. Please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Thank you again, as always, for supporting this journey and just enjoying Star Wars with me. And until next week, my friends, as always, may the Force be with you.